Welcome to episode 29 of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week I have Eric Mays, who is a serial nanotechnology entrepreneur and is currently CEO of Endomag. So Eric's done a few different things in his career. He's got over 20 years of experience in kind of technology, materials, nanotechnology, etc. Um, he was named the Royal Society of Chemistry's Entrepreneur of the Year in 2003 for his founding role in a company called Nanomagnetics, which he talks about on the podcast. He also had another company um, called Cambridge Display Technologies, again using nanotechnology for things in the media, and he talks about that on the podcast as well. And then Eric got into health, so he joined a Cambridge-based spin-out company as CEO called Endomag, and they use magnetism to help doctors locate and remove breast cancer tumours. So on the podcast, we talk about Eric's background, talk about some of the lessons that he's learned as an entrepreneur in the nanotechnology space, and we talk about adoption of innovation as well, kind of more broadly, and how some of the lessons that Eric's learned in getting Endomag adopted and growing his company actually spill over into the wider health tech domain and uh, applicable to entrepreneurs in digital health as much as they are in life sciences, biotech, nanotechnology. So really cool podcast to do. And as always, if you want to get in touch, tweet us at hsventure. Um, get in touch by commenting on one of our Instagram posts at hs.ventures. Visit our website, which is hs.ventures. And feel free to get in touch with me. Um, search for James Somaru and you'll find me on all of the usual mediums. So enjoy the podcast and do get in touch. Eric, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. It's uh relatively sunny day here in Cambridge and, and not raining so oh very nice you're based in Cambridge yeah oh, excellent not far away at all um yeah I actually said last week on our podcast it probably rained similar that 20 percent of our listeners are in the U.S. so uh, most of those are on the west coast so they're probably enjoying a far sunnier June day than we are at the Absolutely. moment but you, um, spoiled their impressions of the U.K. by <laughs> sunshine around here yeah, it's raining and miserable and grey. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you're so glad you moved here. Absolutely. <laughs> um, cool. So, Eric, um, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us your story? Sure. So, um, I'm the, the CEO of Indomag, and as as you sort of uh, we were chatting earlier, uh, noted my my voice. I'm not a native to this land, um, so I came over to the UK in in 1996. Uh, to do my PhD at the University of Bath, and I was doing my PhD in an area of chemistry that's sort of material science. It's uh, called bioinorganic chemistry, so looking at uh, biological systems and how they uh, can take inorganic materials and push them in directions to create shapes. So things like bone in the body or or seashells. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of inorganic materials in in the natural world. Are generally single crystals, and the, those crystals are controlled by the proteins they interact with. So I was really excited by um, looking back towards nature to design uh, new types of materials and and uh, control them. And I had visions when I came over to the UK, you know, moving from the US to to Europe, that uh, because this was an area that was involved in 
um, you know, natural materials that I might be on a boat in the Mediterranean, you know, uh, digging up sea life and <laughs> doing something really sad like that. But no, no, instead I got uh, chained to a desk in, in, in rainy bath. <laughs> but um, so I came over to do my PhD, uh, started doing that and, and during really in that first year of doing my PhD, I guess I've always sort of had a, a bit of an entrepreneurial um, streak or, or interest because I grew up in the era of personal computers and lots of friends had started uh, software companies or you know games companies because uh, you know, at the time when personal computers first came out, you had to make your own games. And I was you know interested in doing things that could turn into a business. And uh, I guess saw the, the potential for working in a new area of of material science, you know, really rising um, or utilizing the rise in, in capabilities of the biotech industry. And, and that was the reason I came to do my PhD in the UK. But because I had that entrepreneurial mindset, um, I got excited when uh, looking at the data storage industry, recognizing that the demands on the technology behind hard disk drives meant that they would be running into a brick wall uh, a few years you know, prior to 2000. And, and what was particularly exciting is the thing that everyone was sort of crying out for in the industry was a way to control magnetic materials at the nanoscale um, and, and get some uniformity in the little grains that comprise the, the magnetic media. And I, I had this idea of using a protein um, that occurs naturally in humans and plants and bacteria called ferritin to, uh, to basically capture magnetic material inside it um, and, and regulate its uniformity. And it turned out that the size of that ferritin protein, the internal dimensions were exactly the same dimensions as what the industry had been talking about as, uh, um, as a goal. And then I got really excited. I thought, wow, you know, everyone's talking about these, these design criteria they need to achieve and biology has already done that. And so I set up a company um, called Nanomagnetics um, back in 1997 uh, with, a, with a neighbor who had a background in, um, in investment banking. Uh, so, you know, he knew a little bit about the, the um, finance industry, not a lot about entrepreneurial uh, activities, but, um, but we both sort of stumbled into creating this company. And, and it was a, a pretty exciting uh, story, it had a pretty exciting journey. Um, you know, grew it uh, venture-backed uh, to uh, a pretty reasonably sized organization um, with uh, a lot of intellectual property behind it uh, that most importantly was just ahead of uh, IBM who came up with a similar idea but 18 months after our patents. And so we thought we were, you know, on top of the world and going to change the data storage industry. Um, but like, like many industries in particular, data storage is often disrupted. Uh, we were disrupted by uh, the arrival of flash memory and you know, while magnetic recording is still around uh, that brick wall uh, that the industry was headed for eventually it sort of plateaued and and not much has happened there so i had my first entrepreneurial experience with that uh, with that company um, moved from there to a company called cambridge's uh, cambridge display technology which was in a similar area, so basically consumer electronics, but different sorts of materials, so electroluminescent polymers, that when you apply a current, they glow in different colors. And these polymers have the ability to be inkjetted down, so the, the idea was to be able to use simple inkjet uh, manufacturing technology to print displays for cell phones, for televisions, for, for large billboards, et cetera. And join that company um, doing business development. Um, found it very exciting, but ultimately uh, we, we were acquired by Sumitomo Chemical in, in 2007 and 
And once it becomes part of a you know giant multinational corporation where decisions take a long time, um, it was it was you know not quite the uh, the excitement level that I'd had having started a company or having joined something that was growing growing rapidly. And and that's when Indomag um, got in touch. There were you know university spin out, and they were looking for a, a CEO to join them and help craft the company. And basically, all I had learned through my original startup. Um, and, and also being you know, part of the larger corporate world and, and doing business development. I thought you know, all the skills that I've gained really could make a difference in this company. And, and most importantly to me, it wasn't anything to do with consumer electronics. It was really about helping people rather than you know, making fancy gadgets that would uh, be tossed in the, in the trash or um, just gather dust over years. So it seems that you definitely enjoy the ups and downs of the startup world far more than the nice plateauing corporate world, right? I, I guess so. I'm not, it sounds crazy. I'm not really one for change. I don't really like change. But, <laughs> um, but there is something uh, that I find you know, compelling about every day is different. There's a new challenge and just you know, um, solving problems is, is fun. And, and what's nice about the entrepreneurial space um, that I didn't think I would do. I thought my parents are both academics. So I was, you know, going to do my PhD and then go teach. Um, but I found it interesting that I had different problems to solve. Um, you know, I can still do a bit of a uh, bit of science, but I have you know, business problems, finance problems, management problems, um, market problems, and and the the field was a lot broader uh, for me doing entrepreneurial activities than than having stayed as an academic. Mm. Was it tough to bounce back after nanomagnetics? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it, um, with nanomagnetics, I uh, was because you guys did nothing wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, seemingly. <laughs> no, that's true. You know, it, other than not spotting, you know, the the advent of, of flash memory. Yeah, well, I think there's there are things that, in, in retrospect, you know, not only I, the rest of the senior management team, our, our board, and we didn't really take notice of of what was happening in the industry. Um, so I was, you know, we, we raised a significant fund and set up a really lovely uh, clean room with um, electron microscopes and you know, all the kit that we'd need to develop our technology further and compete with the likes of IBM. And, and in doing so, you know, we didn't have tons of cash. Um, so we'd, you know, we'd find uh, equipment that was, you know, secondhand um, from the Bay Area in California, and basically we were buying up equipment from data storage companies that were going out of business. So that that was kind of a warning sign um, that maybe something was amiss in the industry. But I think the more fundamental one is is a mistake that you know that we've made, but but many companies uh, continue uh, to make, which is understanding their fit within their supply chain. So we were making a you know completely novel material. Um, we were suggesting that uh, that the industry we were trying to make it slot in to, um, you know, basically the existing supply chains by saying, oh, well, you know, we're making the media, but existing read heads with existing electronics, they can, um, you know, they don't need to be changed in order to uh, enjoy the benefit of, of our technology. But, uh, but um, we were making a, a magnetic fluid and suggesting that the industry you know, basically print that onto discs, whereas the industry was evaporating metal thin films onto discs. And they had, you know, a huge investment in all these sputtering tools to do that. Yeah. Basically saying, hey, take all that equipment, throw it out and put in some inkjet printers. And, and you know, we thought the, 
the capabilities of our technology were so compelling that they would make that change in manufacturing, but really we should have integrated all the way to something that was clearly differentiable, which was make the media ourselves and just, you know, sell that against sputtered medium. So it's, you know, finding the right spot in supply chain. Um, we missed it. Uh, we assumed everyone would find it so compelling they'd change for us, but... Uh, Great, great lesson to learn early and great lesson to learn to eventually get into health tech as well. Such an important part is just understanding where you are in that chain and understanding exactly what problem you are going to solve and for whom and how they are going to integrate it into their flow. Excuse me. So then Endomag get in touch and it seems that you, by this point, you've got a very good skill set for for you know this emerging sort of biotech spin out um looking to do some cool stuff with nanotechnology um so yeah tell me about that um that transition and sort of i guess talk me through the 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 learning journey for you in joining that company because i imagine you did some due diligence and saw what they were up to and got excited by it so talk me through that journey of, of joining them it's actually a bit of a, a funny or ironic backstory to my uh, engagement with Indomag. So one of the founders um, is a professor at the University of College London. And during the days of, of nanomagnetics, um, with the team, we wanted to make sure everyone was sort of up on the latest in what was happening in, in academic research, just to you know, spark uh, the R&D team's mind. And so monthly, we would have these events where we'd invite uh, lecturers, either from industry or from universities to come and talk on what they were doing in terms of magnetism. And so we'd actually invited this founder, uh, Professor Quentin Pankhurst, um, over to see us at Nanomagnetics. And he presented and, and talked really about some of the aspects of the origins of, of Indomag and where they wanted to go. And, you know, he gave a, a really good lecture, but I remember thinking, eh, you know, it sounds really sounds like a stretch. I don't think that's going to really true. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Nanomagnetics dies, um, and I end up working for his, for his company. But so I'd, I'd known him, uh, he had known me, he had known, um, you know, all that I had put into that, that first company. And, you know, even though I'd made some mistakes, we did a, a lot of things right, and it was a pretty exciting uh, story at the time. Um, and it was good for, just coming back on your earlier question, it was good to have uh, some time working with Cambridge Display Technology to, I guess, convalesce of not being in the firing line, but it was weird not being a CEO um, and going into a company at lower down in the management uh, team and not being able to see what was happening on a strategic day-to-day basis. Um, yeah. That was a bit of a frustration. And that's, I think, partly also the seed of what made me keen to get back to entrepreneurial activity is, you know, particularly when CDT got acquired by Sumitomo Chemical, you know, I was so, so far down at the picking order, I had no yeah. idea. And no influence and no agency on what would happen with uh, with its with its future, and uh, so in Indomag, when the founder got in touch and said, "Listen, we're really um, doing something exciting now. It's grown. They had some clinical evidence. Um, they had some IP. They had uh, managed to get a grant from the UK government uh, to work with a medical device manufacturer to develop um, their system into a more commercializable product." And so it was basically all the parts were there. Um, and, and so that, the most exciting thing to me is I would be employee number one. And so it was like being a founder, but without the uh, hassle of having 
your own technology be the thing that you're driving forward, which I think the, the other uh, learning from, from nanomagnetics, which uh, I call it falling in love with your technology, is that, you know, for me, that technology was the only solution for the industry. Um, and, uh, and it turned out it wasn't the only solution for the industry. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and so I think there's an advantage in having some objectivity of coming in as uh, as a senior manager into a company that has a technology and, and being able to say, well, you know, we we recognize it's a problem we're solving. Maybe it's our technology. Maybe it's another one, and we're going to go out and solve that customer problem. And and you know, hopefully we can bring our technology uh, to to do that. But if we can't, you know, not not so proud to um, to find something else that will do it. So it was because I had the opportunity for that objectivity. Um, it was the opportunity uh, to, to grow something fresh again from the very, the very base. Um, but also the fact that the, that the founding team had taken it pretty far down, down the road, um, in particular with clinical evidence. And yeah, so went out and spoke to breast surgeons, said, you know, what do you think about this technology in terms of helping you? Um, and, and I think also importantly, it was, a, it was the timeline. So I, I joined the company and, in 2010, and that was the same year that uh, sentinel lymph node biopsy, which is something my, we'll talk about uh, as a technique, became really the standard of care. It was when the uh, big publications with many thousands of patients um, read out and showed uh, you know, the five-year follow-ups, um, showing that, that finding one or two lymph nodes would be implicated in the spread of cancer um, had the same predictive value as taking out the 30 or so lymph nodes in the armpit region. Um, and, and you didn't have all the morbidities associated with taking out those 30 nodes, such as, you know, damage to nerves or lymphedema where, you know, lymph can't drain from, uh, from the arm. Mm. So tell us about the product then. So just explain, um, what it is, what the problem is that you're solving. Um, and because of your background, tell us about the tech as well. Absolutely. So, uh, what we have is something called a Centimag, is the instrument. And Inamag is effectively a, a surgical guidance company. So we use this instrument to help guide surgeons to the tissue they want to find. And broad brush, the, the mission is to try to prevent um, unnecessary surgery in the first place. Um, but then when surgery is necessary, we want to improve it, um, but then also increase access uh, for, for everyone from not only a uh, uh, availability geographically, but also a financial availability perspective. And, and you might say, you know, what do surgeons want to find? <laughs> well, um, in, in breast cancer, what they want to find is the primary tumor, um, as well as the lymph nodes that will be implicated in the spread of cancer, um, which is basically lymph nodes are the first stop on, uh, on the spread of medicine metastatic disease. And where Indomag started was on that second part, finding these lymph nodes would be implicated in the spread of cancer. Um, the standard of care, and, and which really became standard of care in, in 2010, was to, to use a, a radioisotope labeled um, colloid or a bit of albumin that's injected into the patient, um, labeled with technetium-99, and to do that alongside an injection of blue dye. And by using those two um, injections collectively alongside a, a Geiger counter, um, which has a handheld, a thin handheld probe, the surgeons then scan that over the body, um, in particular the, the armpit region, the axilla, um, 
in relation to breast cancer and look for hot spots. And then once they find a hot spot, they will uh, make an incision. Uh, they will resect tissue until they, they find the hot spot. Um, and if that hot spot is, is also blue um, and radioactive, uh, then they remove that. Uh, they take that as a sentinel node. They, they write down how hot it is um, as a number. And then they will go back uh, into the axilla and continue looking until um, they don't find any more nodes that are greater than 10% of that hottest node they'd found. So generally what this means is taking out two or three nodes on average, um, but that has, again, the same predictive value as taking out all of the lymph nodes in, in the armpit region um, in terms of whether the cancer is spread and you know, the advantage of not doing unnecessary surgery of taking out all of these additional nodes. And, and it's a great technique and it works very well, uh, but the, the problem with it is the radioisotope um, isn't available at every hospital. Um, it has a pretty uh, challenging supply chain. So these Technesium 99 has a six hour half-life. And so it's not something you can have sitting on the shelf for days. Um, it's, the, it's an isotope byproduct of molybdenum 99, which has a slightly longer uh, half-life. And that's a byproduct of a, a lot of nuclear power stations. So they, a power station um, may have a, an offside business where they send out radioactive molybdenum um, to hospitals. Uh, hospitals can then, in their hospital pharmacies, uh, translate that into Tech 99 and then in the pharmacy label either a sulfur colloid or a bit of albumin. And that's done generally on the day or, or uh, maybe the day before um, and injected in the patient. And, you know, you've got to have a pretty robust system for managing nuclear materials. So, you know, not every hospital has this. Um, you know, major medical centers do. Sure, they use isotopes all the time. Um, but there's a lot of hassle that goes into that in terms of not just accessing the nuclear medicine. Um, the fact that, uh, that it has a six-hour half-life means that when you inject a patient, um, you have to perform the surgery on, on them within basically 24 hours. And so, you know, you need your nuclear medicine person there um, either later on the day for the next day or early on the day of surgery. And, and so that creates some, some scheduling uh, challenges. So long story short, Indomag was set up to resolve that by replacing the radioisotope and the blue dye um, with one material, which is a, a magnetic nanoparticle we call MagTrace. And MagTrace is a uh, fun term for the day, a super paramagnetic uh, particle. Um, so if it was just a, a magnetic particle or ferromagnetic particle, if you had all of, um, those particles together, they would generally stick together. Um, and if you're injecting that into a patient, you don't want to create an embolism. So um, superparamagnetic particles are ones where uh, they only um, orient in a magnetic field or become like, magnetized when there's an applied field. Um, and they don't stick together in that, they just align in the field. When you remove the field, they all go back to their random orientations. And these sorts of materials have been used in the body clinically uh, for a number of years as contrast agents for uh, MRI imaging. Um, and so, you know, they were known uh, in, the, in the field already, but what we've done is basically repurposed uh, the, the concept um, at a particular size to be filtered out by lymph nodes um, so that just like the radioisotope and blue dye, you can inject this magnetic material. Um, and just like the, uh, the Geiger counter with its slim probe, we have a magnetometer, the Centimag, um, with its slim probe that behaves in the same way. And so it was designed such that procedurally it looks identical uh, 
to what surgeons were doing before, but has a few advantages. Um, one being that our material uh, has, rather than a six hour half-life, we, we have a three year shelf life. And so that automatically resolves the issues about, you know, does your hospital have a nuclear medicine department? Yeah, hey, it doesn't need one. So really any clinic can offer a sentinel lymph node biopsy now. Um, we have, you know, one injection, uh, the magnetic material has a bit of a color as well. And so not only do you get um, the remote detectability of, of uh, say, uh, magnesium radioactive material, uh, you get that remote detectability with the magnetic material, but you also get the color. Um, so just as blue dye gives a color, uh, the iron oxide uh, that forms this nanoparticle gives it, gives it a color. Um, and, and because you can have it available for a long time uh, and you know, open up the supply chain, uh, that addresses one issue of availability. Uh, but one other important thing about uh, the product is that it increases efficiency because not only does the material um, go into the lymph nodes, it doesn't go on to, to higher order lymph nodes. So it basically goes into the central nodes and stays there, but it maintains its magnetic characteristics for a number of weeks. And so what that means is no longer do you have to do the injection just prior to surgery or the morning of or the day before, you could do it you know, a week before surgery. And so that really frees up um, the flexibility around when the patient comes in and gets injected. Um, it means that you're not gated by someone doing an injection in the morning, which means a surgeon can start their list earlier, it means they can fit more patients in. Uh, and, and I think more importantly for surgeons and the customers that we've been dealing with is they can do the injections themselves or have the nurse do it. They don't need nuclear medicine or a specialist to, to do the injection. And so there are you know, tons of benefits with it. Um, and since a lymph node biopsy is a, is a concept that already helps present, prevent unnecessary surgery, but the improvement in terms of getting rid of radioactivity, simplifying the technique, um, and you know, clinically we've now, through a number of trials, uh, shown that we are non-inferior to the standard of care of, of the radioisotope plus blue dye, uh, but more specifically, we are you know, superior to radioisotope or, or blue dye alone. And so, you know, we really give a, a fantastic option for surgeons all over the world that might not have been able to offer the standard of care for breast cancer patients prior to that. I, th I think it's really interesting for loads of reasons. I mean, so obviously being a doctor, being an anesthetist, I've seen this procedure done so often i've seen the um i've seen the surgeons with their geiger counter and you know the blue dye and all that all that sort of stuff and the wires and everything and what you're saying is so the, the system now is that they're using these radioactive isotopes which have got short half-lives which means that there's a huge pressure on time for you know getting this injection in the morning seeing the spread of it etc etc but what you're doing is is replacing this with not a you're replacing the radioactive element with this magnetic element and so similar to contrast agents and they're going to be filtered by the lymph nodes they're going to follow the same path and do all the same things but you're just removing the the, the necessity for using radioactive substances essentially which sounds great and i think the the best thing for me there is that procedurally it's exactly the same because for any innovation that's the dream because you can just replace one like for like, you know, the, the surgeon don't need to interrupt their workflow. You then just layer on the benefits. You can say you can keep doing everything exactly the same, 
but actually you no longer need to inject people in the morning and then operate the, in the afternoon. You can actually leave it a couple of days. You can even out your list and you can then start layering the advantages on. And it seems to make a heck of a lot of sense. And I love the fact that, you know, now any clinic can offer a sentinel node biopsy, you know, incredibly useful, an obviously useful um, thing for these sorts of patients. And so, as you say, you're, you're also solving the problem um, of access. So you're widening access um, to more clinics, therefore more people and, and making that on offer to more, um, more patients in the country and also around the world. So where is this being used? Is this ubiquitous now? I mean, I've been out of medicine for a few years now. So is this, is this now um, everywhere? Is this the new standard of care? Um, where are you with kind of regulation and nice guidance and all that sort of stuff? Absolutely. Well, it's, um, you know, I'm pleased to say we're in over 30 countries now um, wow. and have treated over 35,000 patients, but it is, you know, far from the standard of care. Um, although the people that are using it believe it will become the standard of care, but there's a long, a long way to go. Um, what's interesting, or at least has been interesting to us about the material, um, being a nanoparticle, um, these sit kind of in a regulatory gray area. So I, I mentioned that very similar to an MRI contrast enhancement agent and contrast agents are regulated as drugs, whether you're in Europe or, or the US or yeah. we are globally. But when we, um, when we took uh, this material to the regulators in Europe first, uh, back in 2011, we made an argument that it was a device um, because its primary mode of action is, is really to be filtered out by lymph nodes and then be excited by an external probe and, and provide you know, guidance to that, uh, to that lymph node and then materials removed upon, you know, removing the lymph node. And you know, I suppose, I suppose it's similar to if you swallowed like a smart pill or something like that. It's just, it's just entering the digestive system in that case, whereas yours is entering the lymph system. So I can see, I can see where you're coming from there. Okay. Well, you know, it's, you'd think the same with a barium enema. Um, you know, you take this, you know, drink some barium, it goes down um, your digestive tract and, and, and comes out. And that used to be a device, but the FDA a number of years ago decided that was a drug as well because it was Interesting. a contrast. Interesting. Um, so, you know, a pill, you know, for me, uh, smart pill is clearly a device, but, you know, it's kind of doing the same thing as barium. <laughs> so that it, it's a, a challenging uh, uh, regulatory question, actually, because it teases this boundary between what is a device and what is a drug. Mm. And it the regulators to, to agree with us. Um, well, agree as much as regulators do. They said, well, you know, we, we'll agree that this is a device, but we, you know, reserve our ability to change our minds. You can see where, the, where, where some discomfort lies though, can't you, in, in the sense that it's a fluid. Yeah. So be, therefore, therefore, because you can't put a definitive boundary around that physically, per se and i suppose you can't see the technology you can, i can understand why it's a, a difficult area to classify yeah well it's and that's i think one of the reasons that we're not standard of care yet is it takes a long time to you know every country we go into the default position of regulators is well this is a drug um and so yeah. the last year when we got our, our pma approval from the fda uh, it was exciting for us for a number of reasons, but primarily because this was the first time the FDA approved a nanoparticle as a medical device. Um, technically, its its primary mode of action is a device. They, they regulate it as a combination product, um, and basically any nanoparticle, whether it's a drug uh, or a device, will, will become a combination product, or that's the way they'll tackle them. 
um, and the lead agency has decided then based on the primary right of action. But you know, it, it took us you know four years, including our pivotal trial in the U.S., to get that approved. And and basically, we're you know as we go through each country, we're going through this process, um, and and it's a you know it's it's a more challenging product from a regulatory point of view, even mm-hmm. though it solves lots of lots of uh, lots of problems. But but that's um, why our other product <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, has been has been a boon because it's a lot simpler from a regulatory perspective. Um, and what was interesting is when we you know got out into the field. Um, you know, starting to market our products, surgeons say, hey, you know, we love this, we love how it frees us up, uh, we can do the injections, we can set our schedules. They said, but you know what, there's, there's this other thing that we'd like to find, um, which is the primary tumor. And, and uh, I think this also speaks to the value of speaking to your customers, because you know, as scientists and business people sitting in, in an office, um, we have assumptions, uh, and one of the assumptions was, assumptions was, well, you know, surely surgeons know where the tumor is. <laughs> um, where to go and, and how to find it, um, but but you know one of the, the things that's happened, uh, particularly in the West, is as screening has gotten so much better, is that tumors are found when they're very small, and and you can't feel them, and so these in, impalpable lesions um, are are really challenging for surgeons to find. So the radiologist can see it, but the surgeon can't find it, and so the radiologist needs to leave a, a trail of breadcrumbs for the surgeon to follow, and. And the breadcrumbs they leave is a technology that dates back to the 1970s. That's the standard of care today, which is a lot more primitive than radioisotopes and blue dye. It's it's a basically a like a fish hook on a wire, yeah. um, and that gets inserted by the radiologist, uh, where the fish hook is then placed at the side of the tumor. Um, patient then goes off to the surgeon, who follows that wire down manually, uh, and then once they get close to the end, they start resecting the tissue. And, you know, it's about as horrific as it sounds, you know, patients on the insertion of the wire, you know, some, some patients faint. Um, so they have to then go through the process again. Uh, but the, the biggest problem with this technique is that, that the wires can move. In about a quarter of the cases, uh, the wire moves such that the surgeon takes out um, some, but not all of the tissue. And so uh, the pathologists, you know, the next week, looks at the, uh, the tissue sample and says, oh, actually, we missed a bit on the side. Um, and so they have to bring the patient back in and do a follow-up surgery. So, you know, at great stress to the patient, at, at great cost to the hospital. And, you know, and that's, a, you know, a quarter of the cases on a, on a global basis. And so as soon as we were in the market with uh, MagTrace and helping with sentinel lymph node biopsies, surgeons were saying, hey, guys, can you uh, please do something about this wire as well and make something that can um, that your centimag can guide us to the primary tumor alongside the lymph nodes, and and there's nothing like your customers, you know, begging for a product to, mm-hmm. to product development. So we created something called the Mag Seed, um, that uh, that is is larger, um, much more device-like, and easier to regulate. So uh, entered the U.S. market in 2016 under a 510k, and and got our CE mark in 2017 uh, in, in Europe. And so now both of these products. Are being used in, in over 30 countries, um, and, and MagSeed has uh, again some some huge benefits. Uh, so not only does it uh, you know minimize the amount of movement, so we've we found a reduction. So going from you know it might be about 25% reexcision rate or 25% of the patients having to come back for a follow-up surgery uh, to dropping that to around you know six seven uh, percent, 
and and that's a you know a huge savings for hospitals. It's a, it's a huge benefit for patients, um, but not just the fact that it doesn't move, but they can implant this really at any time prior to surgery. You know whether it's not just the day before, weeks before, months before, um, and that allows a, a great amount of flexibility. You know the patients can have it inserted um, in an outpatient setting and come back months later and have their surgery. Um, rather than you know having a wire hanging out of their, their breast and and having to have the surgery follow on immediately from that. So, you know, they can have it inserted, go home, get on with their life and, and just come back on the day of surgery ready to go. It means for the surgeon they're not waiting on the radiologist to implant the wire. They can again start their procedures in, in, in the morning and get as many in as uh, as they can on the day. So it's it's been a um uh, you know a huge success uh, to date. Um, it, there's a bit more competition in that space. Um, it's, it's such a huge unmet need that there are now a few competitors, um, primarily all in the US, uh, but the one thing that competitors uh, don't have is the ability to also find um, sentinel lymph nodes. So the fact that we had started with sentinel lymph nodes is a, is a benefit because we've made a, a very sensitive detector to detect these tiny particles deeply buried in the body. And that meant that we could have a very small seed uh, that replaces the wire, whereas all the competitors, um, you know, basically have a seeds that are, you know, three to five times as, as large as mag seed, and that limits um, the things that they can do with the seed. Mm. Better for patients, better for clinicians, better for everybody. I mean, it just it definitely sounds like a good innovation. I think the the bit that I want to pull out here for the entrepreneurs listening is the way that you described the phrase that you used, you know, it's great. It's great to know your customers or something along those lines. It's, it's so true. And I think there's, there's something here about good companies in health and what they do is they, they do tend to release a product to their customer, but it is then about listening. It is about understanding where that product fits in both to kind of make that product better in terms of how it sits and how it's used and how it affects the chain and all those different things. But again, as you've said, also to then leverage, your expertise in solving other problems. And I think a huge bit of it in healthcare seems to be trust. It seems to be building trust because I think clinicians and, you know, they're generally the end users of a lot of health tech. And there is often this reservation from clinicians to actually embrace new innovation and because they also have to then embrace change and they have to embrace an extra bit of workload and there's they they get pitched so much stuff and there's eye-rolling moments from them of like oh here's another you know business trying to get into healthcare you know really difficult when you've got a public health system like you do in the uk to battle against that but it seems that you've done things right from that point of view you know you've gone in you've built this trust using a product you've solved a clear problem for them and then you've with that greater understanding and relationship they've then confided in you a different problem that they think you can solve and i imagine then it's it's so much easier to then keep that dialogue going ask them more questions figure out what even more problems you could be solving and then you've got a direct custom base already there that can not only test the products and validate them but then obviously buy them absolutely and that's you know, i'd love to say that was all by design um but it rarely is it really <laughs> <rarely> is <laughs> and it's it, it's partly the fact that you know given that i was the first employee of this company and i had come from a you know, consumer electronics industry. I knew nothing about this space, really. I mean, uh, the, the most I knew about breast cancer was that my mother had 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 it um, 
back at the end of the, the 90s. And the, that was one of the reasons to join the company was, I was like, oh, yeah, I know that she didn't have a, a great experience. And, mm. you know, felt like this would be uh, a bit more meaningful to be involved in. But when I started speaking with, uh, with surgeons and, and radiologists and talking about what it was we were doing, um, it was from a, you know, a naive point and getting their feedback, getting their thoughts. And as I built the team out, um, I encouraged that same level of engagement, irrespective of what uh, the person's role uh, was, you know, whether it was regulatory, was it quality, whether it was a CTO. And, and to this day, um, uh, we're unusual. So when you go to a conference or an exhibition where we're presenting and, and have all the other Medtronics and others out there, you know, everyone else's booth is full of uh, sales reps, um, but our booth is full of of the management team. You know, we have you know sales reps there too, but clinicians can engage with us, and and we really want to talk about you know their issues. We all uh, think to ourselves, you know, we're all scientists at heart. Um, everyone's basically a scientist by background in the company. And so we keep up on the literature and we like talking about what's happening in, in the industry. And we create this relationship and it's, it's very powerful that, you know, all of the, the leaders in the breast field come to talk to us and want to talk to us because, you know, we're not there to sell them a product. We're there to solve, you know, help solve uh, their challenges. And they know that we'll listen. Um, they see us taking notes. They see us going away and, and making the next generation product that solves those uh, those challenges and and it's fun you know we get to be part of uh, the process of helping uh, breast cancer um, patients have a much better and, and much more effective experience I'm so glad you said that and I think it's super important for the entrepreneurs listening to really take that on board because part of this podcast is to try and educate the 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 younger and less experienced entrepreneurs as to how to break into health or how to actually solve problems in health and why innovating in health is often different and you've kind of hit the nail on the head there that one of the advantages of being a startup whether you're in biotech or whether you're in health tech or digital health one of the advantages of being a smaller company is being able to do the things that the larger companies can't and as you've said the difference is that when you're going to these conferences, you're not sticking a nameless, faceless sales rep that's just regurgitating the same speech over and over and over and again to push a product down someone's throat. You've got the ability to add that personal element to what you're doing. And that allows you to build those relationships with the clinicians and with the departments and with those people that will eventually trial and pilot things and take a bit more of a punt because you're not Medtronic, you're not Abbott, you're not Eli Lilly, you know, you're, you're not going to have the the power, the reach, the number of employees to segregate your roles that much. And so if you, if you, if you're building a small company with 20, 30 people, whatever it is, you have the ability for all of those employees to have that understanding. And that must give you an edge because then when it comes to having and, and actually i talk i've talked about this before on, on previous podcasts and in previous videos that i've done a bit it's it comes down to language quite a lot in health and i think when you do have your cto going around talking in the language of sentinel node biopsies and you know clinical care pathways and you know integrating workflow and talking about the pack system and you know all these sorts of things if you've got everybody from you downwards and everyone's talking the same healthcare language when they come across these people and they talk about what they do in their company they'll be able to build those relationships a lot more so i imagine the inbound leads can come from absolutely anybody then because they're all generating those um 
yeah, those opportunities. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think a distinction uh, that I should make is at the, at the moment, we don't have our own direct sales team. What we do is we have uh, application specialists and then we've partnered with two uh, larger organizations, um, you know, not, uh, not quite Medtronic size, but still pretty big. Um, Sysmex uh, Corporation in, in, in Europe, and they deal with Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And, uh, and part of Danaher or, or Leica Biosystems called Mamatome uh, for North America. And, you know, so they, you know, we get leads, we hand them over to their sales teams. Uh, but then when we go to have the engagements with, with uh, surgeons, you know, we, we send people along um, to help, um, you know, support that relationship, support training. Um, and, and so for most of the customers, uh, they, they still see us as, as uh, an engaged part of, you know, being a manufacturer as well as, you know, a support system for, for them, even though there's a different group that's, uh, you know, transacting the sale. I mean, it, it just, it, it sounds like you're, you're doing things in the right way. And it's, it, it sounds like a really good function to outsource as well that, you know, you can generate the leads and then you can push them to people that know what they're doing and you can still remain involved to give that kind of personality to it as well. It seems like a really good way of doing it. Um, I just want to move us on slightly then, because I want to talk about a couple of the other things that you, that you do. So you're part of the Texas health catalyst. You're part of the European health tech translation advisory board. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about those two things? Yeah, sure. I think, um, you know, it's maybe it's part of my original academic trajectory or the fact that I, you know, grew up and was raised by teachers, but you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a part of me that feels it's important to share, um, share knowledge. And, you know, I'd, it was great that I'd had that experience with nanomagnetics uh, at the beginning, but it, it was pretty traumatic. There were things that, you know, had I had, a me from, you know, 10, 20 years later to come back and say, hey, by the way, um, you know, I think you should uh, avoid doing this or think about this. It would have been uh, a great benefit. And so I've always uh, tried to make a bit of time to speak with entrepreneurs um, at the early stages of, of, uh, of their careers or early stage of their companies to sort of provide, uh, you know, a sounding board uh, to offer some suggestions to talk about you know, mistakes that I've made in, in the hopes that they will avoid them. And um, an outgrowth of that was uh, joining in the Texas Health Catalyst. So this is uh, at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, it's one of uh, the last, well, it's one of the latest large universities that didn't have a medical school to actually set up a medical school. So um, a few years ago, Bell Computer Corporation, alongside a, uh, a public um, tax-funded initiative, uh, set aside some money to fund a medical school for, for UT Austin. So it's now called the Bell Medical School. And they, what was exciting about it um, for, for me, so we, we actually have a link with Austin. So we have an office in, in the state of Texas in, in Austin, partly because Austin is kind of uh, like Cambridge, um, you know, it's, it's entrepreneurial. There's a lot of tech there. There's, there's an emerging uh, health tech sector uh, growing there. But it's not, you know, the, the 100-pound gorilla of, of, you know, San Francisco Bay Area or, or Boston. Sure. Um, and so there's some similarities, um, some infrastructural similarities as well, you know, small towns that hadn't anticipated the growth they have and traffic <laughs> yeah. both. Um, anyway, so I had this link to Austin already. So when the medical school came up, 
I thought, you know, this is kind of an interesting, I should, I should create a, a link here. And so I went to speak to the dean of the medical school and, and learn about what they were wanting to do. And I, I found it particularly compelling that they wanted to do something different. Um, so a lot of that team had come out of the University of California at San Francisco, which funnily enough is actually one of our, our key, uh, key sites and one of the biggest promoters of, of Endomax technology. Um, and they had basically said, you know, when developing um, healthcare for the future, not necessarily about the technology, but about accessibility and, and how uh, you need to be able to, to make sure it's cost effective. Um, they, they'd like to have a medical school that could do that properly. And they felt that some medical schools where the funding is, is uh, provided through um, you know, access of, or you know, paying patients coming in, they felt, you know, for instance, that patients might be over-imaged um, just to generate revenue for the medical school. So, you know, they've got an MRI and then they've got a CT and a PET CT and all this stuff happens. And, and not that it isn't clinically relevant, but, but uh, when they're, you know, looking at how they uh, split the difference, it might be driven from uh, revenue generating viewpoint. And so the idea with Dell Medical School is because it was publicly funded, um, it would be self-sustaining and it wouldn't have to rely on revenue generation to, to look after itself. And that meant that they could take a different approach to how they treat patients and try to do it, you know, really most effectively for the patient and not over-treating, not over-imaging. Um, and, and they also managed to attract some, uh, some designers um, out of uh, IDO, the design uh, house out in the Bay Area to, to join them and set up a school for design specifically to look at improving healthcare efficiency. And so there's, you know, a brand new way of thinking about healthcare, some great ideas, some great people behind it. And I thought, this sounds fantastic. I want to be a part of this. And it turned out they had set up something called the Texas Health Catalyst to, to really help um, early stage health tech ideas coming out of the University of Texas um, get some support from, from mentors, um, get a little bit of money to help get them through some uh, initial hurdles and, and give them a shot at, at translating their ideas to the, to the clinic. And so I've been an advisor to that for a number of years. Um, I'm pleased to say that all the companies that I've been involved in mentoring have actually become winners and managed to get some money through that. Oh, I'm, I'm, it's all down to me, but, I, you know, <laughs> but, um, but some, you know, really fantastic uh, uh, companies. One that I was an advisor on actually got quite a lot of press recently uh, which was a, a, a cancer detecting pin, they call it. Um, but it's a sort of a wand that uh, puts out a little bit of water, soaks up a bit of tissue and then does mass spectroscopy on that. And can, yeah, I saw that. I yeah. Saw, yeah, I saw that in the media. Yeah. So, so that, uh, so I was an advisor of that team, um, which was, which was great. Uh, it, it got a, a little bit ahead of them um, because it, you know, such a, a, you know, an exciting story. Um, but, but they're really, now building a, a good team around that. Um, so I, I'm excited to see how that, that translates. But it's been, you know, to be involved in things like that, even, even just, you know, helping them identify markets, helping them think through how they might approach different markets, um, how they might think about, you know, manufacturing issues or regulatory issues they'll run into. Um, it's, it's fun to be behind the scenes and, and, you know, I've got my day job at Indomag, but, you know, it's been, it's been great to be involved in that. And, and similarly in, in Europe, uh, European um, Commission 
uh, uh, European Union with what they call the Horizon 2020 funding um, had set up something called the uh, the ETPN or the European Translation or tech, uh, Translation Nanotechnology Platform, and it was really for for nanomedicine at the time. Um, and so they set up uh, an advisory board for helping nanomedicine companies uh, develop. Um, and then it broadened out to more health tech. And so there's something called the health tech tab that I participate in. And, and again, it's very you know, early stage um, companies or ideas, academics in institutions that have an idea that, that maybe they've done some, uh, some clinical work on, or maybe they're you know, thinking they want to do some clinical work on, or that maybe they just need to Develop uh, develop the IP a little bit further, but we're trying to help them translate those things into the clinic. And so I spend um, I don't know a couple of days a month um, supporting you know either of these initiatives, and it's 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 great for me because I get to you know uh, see lots of exciting ideas coming through and and, uh, and get to help them. Um, and it's also a, a way to stretch my mind in, in ways that I'm sure will benefit Indomag at some stage. I completely agree. I I love teaching. I love um seeing i love seeing the growth of those those companies but also the individuals i really like that i like seeing advice that that i give personally but also that we give at hs to, to the companies that we bring on and just seeing that growth in, in the people is is just as rewarding as seeing the the growth in the companies if not more for, from our side um eric listen I, i've thoroughly enjoyed this and i can't believe we've actually run out of time that's gone so quickly um but thank you so much for coming on and, and certainly educating me about nanotechnology and um, educating me that things can actually fit inside ferritin, um, for example, <laughs> like who knew? Um, but yeah, the way that we end these podcasts is um, I'll hand back over to you to kind of summarize just a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you're up to, um, a bit about Endomag. Um, and if you've got any advice for our entrepreneur audience or you've got any asks of our audience, then do feel free to let us know, but thanks so much for joining. Absolutely, James. So, uh, again, you know, I'm, uh, I guess, an entrepreneurial material scientist who uh, got excited about health tech uh, and, and joined Indomag back in 2010 and, and have grown, I think, a, a really exciting uh, company um, where, I guess, the, the mission that I had, we've been able to sort of maintain that, uh, that feeling throughout its growth um, and, and really trying to make the best standard of care available for breast cancer available as, as many places as, as possible. Um, and, and, you know, our goal is, is really to become the standard of care for, uh, for breast cancer in terms of finding the primary tumors and, and, uh, and uh, lymph nodes implicating the spread of cancer. You know, what, what would I say to entrepreneurs? I, the, the biggest thing I've learned through joining a health tech uh, startup is, you know, that, um, engagement with customers is is key. I think that's really true for any industry, but as I mentioned uh, with nanomagnetics, the, the, the big mistake of falling in love with the technology and kind of missing how we fit in the supply chain um, is, is pretty uh, standard for any technology company. Um, but in healthcare, there are so many more uh, things that you need to align with, not just supply chains, but you know, surgical practice, um, reimbursement, you know, uh, procedural guidelines, and and just being prepared to to solve uh, those integration problems is is a huge aspect of what you'll be doing, and 
one of the best ways to do that is simply to engage with customers and talk these things through because if if you're solving their problems they'll want to spend time working with you and helping uh, guide you through those hurdles too you know if there's an ask that we have i think um you know we, we want to become the standard of care you know we're in 30 countries there there are a lot more to go um i, I think if anyone's interested in our technology uh, particularly in terms of helping provide what is really the, the best standard of best cancer uh, care. Um, you know, do feel free to get in touch. There are many countries we're not in yet. Um, I, I'd heard on your podcast that Mauritius was one of your new countries, and I think there was a, a conference in Mauritius recently where they were talking about MagSeed. So, um, you know, we're not, I don't know if, uh, I know we're not approved there yet, but, um, you know, Mauritius, maybe we're, we're coming there next. Um, but, you know, do reach out. Uh, we're interested in continuing to engage with, um, with surgeons from around the world and, and understand how we can bring the technology and, and uh, adopt it for your countries. Eric, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, James.